0: Welcome to Energetic Health Radio, and thank you for listening. Today we're blessed to be able to bring you almost an hour of a power-packed panel event, say that three times real fast, featuring Dr. Peter McCullough from the McCullough Report, Dr. Simone Gold, founder of America's Frontline Doctors, and yours truly, Dr. Henry Ely, founder of the Energetic Health Institute. This is an excellent follow-up to last week's episode of Energetic Health Radio titled COVID-19, What you're not being told could save your life. And this sneak peek was hosted by Alexis Baden Mayer of the Organic Consumers Association, our dear friends over there. So listen in as Dr. McCullough, Dr. Gold, and I discuss things we wish every doctor knew, clinical COVID success stories we've experienced, what we've learned over the last 19 months, and the scientific evidence confirming that natural immunity in people who've recovered from the man made infection is more robust durable and flexible. That's right. Able to handle any variant than any fleeting immunity in people who trusted the experimental injections to protect them. And to be clear, we're not knocking anybody who did. It's your right to decide. And we support you on that. If that was the route you went with treatment options available, we support every American's right to decide for themselves which route is best for them. Isn't that the way it should be? So let's take an objective look at what the peer-reviewed science is really saying, and if you'd like to watch the full interview, we invite you to go to our new site, covidcon21.com, that's covidcon21.com, and be a part of the solution. Let's take a listen in.
1: Welcome, and thank you for joining us. My name is Alexis baden I'm the political director of the Organic Consumers Association, and I'll be your host tonight for our solutions series, prevention and early treatments for COVID-19 that every American has a right to know about. Emergency use authorizations for the experimental new so-called vaccines were based on several criteria, including that there were no other adequate approved and available alternatives. As of September 7th, 2021, there have been over 30 million confirmed recoveries from COVID-19 in the United States. According to the CDC's own data, the recovery rate is 99.6% in Americans under 65 years of age and 99.99% in children under 18 years of age statistics like this are welcome news and an indication that evidence-based prevention and treatment strategies do exist that's what we're going to be talking tonight with dr peter mccullough of truth for health foundation dr simone gold founder of america's Frontline Doctors, and Dr. Henry Ely of the Energetic Health Institute. Welcome panelists, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having us, Alexis.
1: Well, you all are all truly my heroes. I've been watching your, your work over the last more than a year now, and I know that each of you has had experience in the successful treatment of COVID. What have you learned through your clinical experiences that you wish every doctor was aware of. Let's start with Dr. Peter McCullough. Sure, well, thanks for
2: having me. And by way of introduction, I'm an internist and cardiologist in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. I maintain my boards in both specialties. I'm the editor of two major journals and president of a major medical society. And I've turned my entire attention to COVID-19 uh, in the last 18 months. In a sense, I've done a fellowship in COVID-19 and <laughs> starts covid 2 So I, I feel as qualified as any infectious disease doctor on this specific uh, infectious disease and reviewed thousands of reports. And like so many else on the call, uh, have felt really a need to fill a gap. And the gap in COVID-19 has been Treatment, ambulatory treatment for COVID-19. As our agencies initially focused on in-hospital care and then later on uh, vaccines, and I'd say to kick off the discussion, I think one of the first things we've learned is that the illness is subject to risk stratification, meaning the illness is not the same for everybody, but it's it, it really depends on age. Age is one of the biggest factors. So the younger someone is, the milder the form of the illness so mild that in children covid 19 is milder than a common cold i just saw a three year old as i was seeing a family on a house call visit this last weekend and the three-year-old honestly had a drippy nose for i think a day and a little bit of a little bit of coughing congestion and then the next day was playing around was perfectly fine i said wow covid 19 in a a small child a three-year-old is a wonderful thing just get it over with it's easier than a, a common cold and then they have a robust, complete, and durable natural immunity. Conversely, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 in an 80 year old can be a totally different illness that has a high risk of hospitalization and death. And so it's very serious. So it's amenable to risk stratification based on age and risk factors, obesity, diabetes, heart and lung disease, prior um, cancers and kidney disease are the big ones. The dividing line is typically age 50, age 50 and above, start adding these risk factors we get over a one percent risk of hospitalization and death and an escalated in graded fashion higher there's even a stronger call to do some intervention to avoid hospitalization and death there's two bad outcomes with covid 19 being hospitalized or dying so it's always this composite hospitalization and death that really matters people have said well um, uh, what determines if someone has a mild case or not? I said, really, the factor is early treatment. COVID-19 always starts out mild. So I can tell you, I've fielded hundreds and hundreds of calls advised on probably thousands of cases now. And it always, people always say, you know what, doc, I think I've got a mild case. And I said, that's the reason why it's called SARS-CoV-2, sudden acute respiratory disease. It can be sudden and things can turn bad, particularly in high risk people. Uh, within a few days or so. Now, another important feature of risk stratification is the presentation of severe symptoms. If someone on day one already has severe symptoms, that is somebody who is is basically telling the doctors and the care provider team that they're gonna need early ambulatory treatment. So we do treat younger people and we treat children if they present with severe symptoms. So that's kind of my opening set of remarks.
1: That's great, that's so helpful. Um, Dr. Simone Gold, what would you add to that? What do you wish that every doctor knew about COVID-19?
3: So I was a board-certified emergency physician for more than 20 years when SARS-CoV-2 came and hit the shores. I also went to Stanford University Law School. I was always interested in health policy. That's what propelled that. And when I was watching this um, pandemic, you know, sweep the globe, you know, we were getting ready and we were getting prepared and. You know, at the moment, we didn't know what was going to come later from a political perspective. At that time, though, it was clear that there would be early treatment. We knew this because the earliest studies were in February of 2020. And at that time, chloroquine was being used in China. It had then became national policy to use chloroquine, which is the precursor to hydroxychloroquine as early as February 2020. So I was watching this and I was watching the coronavirus task force, and I was really ready, like all of my ER colleagues, you know, for when the first patients would hit. And um, what I would say to my colleagues is to is to do that sort of work that I did, which is what we all did in medical school and residency, and that was think for yourself. It has been very distressing to discover that most physicians are getting their news from the same source as most Americans, Facebook, Twitter. And depending on which camp you belong to you hear different things but doctors have no excuse for acting like that they are perfectly capable of opening up the literature scientific journal and reading for themselves in fact anyone can some of the best journalists on the subject do exactly that all of these journals are free they're open to the world to the public and you can read for yourself and see The early treatment works so i don't blame the average person for not doing that although i advise them to because we're not being told the truth but i certainly urge doctors not to let other people think for you whether that's the cdc or the fda or the nih or any other doctor practice medicine the way you always practice medicine doctors learn in the following ways. We go to school for a long time, then we read journals. When we go out to practice on our own, we learn by our own bedside experience. We learn by watching doctors that we know are really smart. We learn by talking to other doctors. That's how we learn and grow as doctors. Why are you listening to other sources that are not truly scientific? As Dr. McCullough alluded to, there are hundreds and hundreds of studies now that have shown that early treatment works. It's not just the one we heard about first that got very politicized, hydroxychloroquine. There's also, of course, ivermectin. There's budesonide. There's really a whole host. And in fact, these drugs are used all across the world. It's really a Western nation problem in America and in Western wealthy nations, they are restricting the access to these cheap, safe, generic drugs. How I know when doctors have drunk the Kool-Aid is when they're not talking about if something works or not, which is now not even up for debate, but when we start slipping into language of safety as in, ooh, that drug isn't safe, which I say hydroxychloroquine has been FDA approved for 65 years. It's been used billions of times across the planet. It's considered one of the safest drugs on the planet. Ditto ivermectin. It's precursive, won the Nobel Prize in medicine for being such a wonderful drug. So Whenever you're reading you know, on social media, I'm talking to you doctors, when you're reading on social media that these drugs are not safe, I urge you to read the literature and the science for yourself. You will discover that we have a, a just a wealth of, of options open to us. And the last thing I would say is that it, it's shameful that our government still to this day, September 2021, says that there's no early treatment outside of being in a hospital and getting oxygen, that is just ridiculous. It's not up for debate. We have hundreds and hundreds of studies. We've had thousands of doctors that stood up and said, of course this works. As you noted at the opening, 30 million people have recovered from this thing. Early treatment works. If your doctor's not giving it to you, find a telemedicine solution who will.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. Ely, what can you add to that?
0: Well it's it's tough to follow these two. Let me let me say that right there. I'm I'm UCLA trained, but not in medicine and, and engineering. And my background is in data analysis. So last year, what we started doing was we started looking at data coming out of South Korea and out of Italy because that we felt, well, that was going to give us the, the best idea of what we could expect here in the United States, especially plotting out their cases, their hospitalizations, and their fatality rates. We, think, we thought we were going to be able to see exactly what was going on. And we did. And so it was really, really clear that there was a bell-shaped curve for all three of these cases hospitalizations, and fatalities that lasted roughly about 40 to 50 days, and then you should have been through this. Now, what happened was in the United States model, when we started plotting all that data from the CDC, it took on the same shape all the way up to the peak, and then it started dropping, and then something amazing happened on April 14th. It started going back up. And so we went, well, wait a minute. That's a, that's a really weird anomaly. Why in the world would it go back up? And it wasn't until about a month or two later when we found out that the CDC had made some significant changes without informing the public, opening up public comment, or going through the regular regulatory procedures that they're supposed to go through in order to alert the Office of Management and Budget. Okay, there's a process that every federal agency has to go through to make sure that the data that they are sharing with the public are accurate and have integrity. And the CDC violated that that ethos. they actually violated three crucial laws, the Administrative Procedures Act, the Paperwork Reduction Act, and the Information Quality Act. And in doing so, manipulated the data and the way the data is processed and analyzed to hyperinflate cases thanks with the help of the pcr hospitalizations again with the help of the pcr and fatalities and deaths and that made the situation look really scary and it freaked a lot of doctors out so where i come in is i would say let's step back for a second and let's start talking not only about early treatment but what can assist early treatment and what can assist early treatment is a deeper understanding of how we can arm americans with information to prevent The infective spread. It is still fingernails, Alexis, it's still fingernails on the chalkboard for me that every single person admitted to a hospital is not tested for their serologic vitamin D levels. We know definitively, based upon the peer reviewed evidence, that when we have 55 nanograms per milliliter or higher, it is a virtual certainty that the person is going to recover. But when we see doctors who are testing for vitamin D, what do they report? 95% of Americans. Americans are in the teens or lower. So that is a major risk factor and something that I would expect the CDC to issue guidance on and every state health department to issue guidance on saying, Docs, if you get a positive person with symptoms in your hospital, check their vitamin D status because we got to get it up. So that's the first thing that I would do is saying, why don't we do the most obvious thing and treat the root? The root is nutrient deficiency in my professional opinion. Where am I getting that information from? Getting it from, guess where? The CDC. The CDC has, compiles every couple of years something called in-hane studies, which are nutritional and analysis studies, right? And what we see with that is They have known for 20 years that 65 to 95% of Americans are deficient in vitamin D, that 37 to 46% of Americans are deficient in vitamin C, that 35 to 45% of Americans are deficient in vitamin A, and that 11 to 15% of Americans are deficient in zinc. Well, what would happen? If we issued guidance nationwide saying, Americans, we know this isn't going to hurt you and it could probably help, and we started issuing guidance on vitamin D, vitamin A, vitamin C, and zinc for essential immunological nutrients to optimize immunological response to any infective source. What we're then doing is now we're empowering Americans to participate beyond just wearing a mask, beyond just staying six feet apart, and setting up the people that do contract the SARS-CoV-2 virus for early treatment like Dr. Gold and Dr. McCullough are so profound in what they're saying. We're setting up the nation for success by treating the root issue, the root issue being nutrient deficiency and unfortunately misinformation from our federal agencies
1: wonderful yeah that's such important information so panelists one of the great problems that we as americans have been having as we witness this crisis because of the unprecedented and dangerous levels of media censorship we haven't really heard a lot about success stories we've got 30 million americans who have recovered from covid And yet, the only stories we hear are about the tragic deaths, the scary long-haul COVID situations. We know that state health departments reporting the long-haul situations are estimating that COVID long-haul makes up about 1% of COVID recoveries. But still, these are the stories that are eclipsing the stories of the 99-plus of Americans who have recovered. So it would be wonderful to hear from each of you a story about someone that you were able to treat who was able to recover and how that happened and the challenges that were presented, but how you solved them. Let's hear a happy ending COVID story. Um, how about starting with Dr. Gold?
3: You know, this is a very easy softball question. I mean, the CDC says even without treatment, the success rate, you know, surviving COVID-19, if you're under age 18, is 99.997%. The success rate of surviving uh, even without treatment, ages 20 to 50, is 99.98%. Between age 50 to 70, it's 99.5%. And even over age 70, it's almost 95%. So sometimes when I give my public talks, I'll, I'll start with a little bit of a joke, which is, you know have you recovered do you do you consider yourself lucky to be in the 99.997 percentile right i mean my goodness if your son came home with a grade that was 99.997 you'd say good job you got a 100 Right? It's like 100% survivable in young, healthy, and quite frankly, almost 100% survivable for middle-aged healthy, healthy people. So the success story, I've got lots of them, but that's the norm, that is the norm. I can't impress upon this enough. We at America's Frontline Doctors have received thousands of emails. its I, I'm remiss that we haven't put all of these on videos. We should have done that. We do occasional stories, but it was so obvious to us. If you have early treatment, thank you, Dr. Healy, From of course, starting with vitamin D. Vitamin D is hugely important. And then, if you 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 know you need it, you get early treatment, and of course, you know you're going to have a success story. Quite frankly, um, no child, for example, has died of this thing unless they had very serious underlying conditions. And we're not talking, you know, mild, you know, asthma. We're talking about people with leukemia or, or, or severe cancer or dreadful morbid obesity. Short of that, children are completely safe. You know, our COVID recovered, um, all the COVID recovered people that we have. I think the estimates now are. Correct me, maybe, Doctor McCullough, but I, I think the most recent thing I saw was over 80% of our blood supply um, shows some immunity to COVID. Either, uh, you know, maybe half of that is from from natural recovery. So I want to impress upon everybody that a good happy ending is the norm. We do have a couple of videos that go over this. We've had many patients, very elderly, who survived. I don't know if you saw the news last year, more than a year ago. I think that. TV doctor on a Tucker show, his father, who was in his late 90s, I think, came down with COVID-19 and, and survived when he got him early treatment. I myself have had patients in there north of 98, 99 years old who've recovered. It really has to do with early treatment and your underlying health condition. So the message is you're going to do just fine if you have early treatment if you need
1: it. Wonderful. I'm feeling better already. <laughs> Um, Dr. Ely, what's your favorite COVID recovery story?
0: Uh, Well, I I was really privileged to work with a a patient. Um, Friday came around. He started feeling symptoms. By Sunday, it had progressed so rapidly um, that he was exhibiting signs of pneumonia. Fortunately, he had a pulse oximeter at home. And what happened was his his oxygen levels went down from like 97% to under 90% in just a couple days. So it progressed very rapidly, of course. He's in his 40s, of course, comorbidities, high elevated cholesterol levels, which was one of the factors, right? And a little bit overweight, not tremendously, but a little bit. But what was really appalling for me, Alexis, was, um, so I I referred him into the hospital and said, hey, we gotta get a chest X-ray, we gotta see if this is progressing to pneumonia. They did an X-ray on him, confirmed pneumonia, did a PCR test on him, confirmed that it was COVID related, and then released him from the hospital without even so much as overnight observation or a saline drip for dehydration. It was appalling to see this. And I said, did they give you any other things? They said, no, if it gets worse, come back. This is what they told a patient. We're not gonna treat you now But if it gets worse, come back. Well, it's going to get worse. Have you heard of pneumonia that doesn't get treated getting better? It doesn't get better without help. So what we did was we set him up with a a doctor who was able to prescribe ivermectin, uh, also um, prednisone and... um, I forget the uh, the antibiotic, but it was a nice, it was a typical cocktail, right? We had him on oral uh, uh, amounts, uh, therapeutic amounts of vitamin D. So we had him in the 50,000 IU range and uh, therapeutic amounts of, of vitamin A and vitamin C orally and things like that. And within two days, he went from under 90 to now over 90%. But of course, by that time, like Dr. McCullough and Dr. Gold have been saying, it's already progressed. OK, so now he's having intense muscle aches, uh, a tremendous, of course, difficulty breathing, a lot of pain, headache. I mean, it's, he's a mess at this point, right? So we said, well, let's take another step forward with this. Let's call in these wonderful in-home IVs uh, people, these folks that come in and give nutrient IVs. So we had a person come in and give him a Myers cocktail. All right, you can look that up, N-Y-E-R-S, Myers cocktail with a glutathione push. So that's where they give a little bit of glutathione, a wonderful nutrient um, that is going to really help open up the lungs and kind of start thinning out some of that mucus in the uh, in the lungs, so he can expectorate, he can spit it out, right? So we he, so he did one of those. By the next day, he's feeling great, and then we had Dr. McCullough like this a regression again, right? Because this is once you've once you've missed that point of early treatment, it's a, it's a, you're in a tussle now with this thing. So then uh, we got him on another IV uh, two days after the, the first one, and that seemed to put him over the top. He actually went from confirmed pneumonia to full recovery in 11 days using the protocols that the American frontline doctors um, advocate, the uh, advice that Dr. McCullough gives me, and, and the nutrient therapy with the com- combination, the synergy of that integrative approach took a patient from confirmed pneumonia that was getting worse to full recovery in 11 days. Most pneumonia that I've treated in my career, we're talking three weeks plus, plus some extended time for recovery. It was just really eye-opening for me. And I had to step back for a second and go, okay, why did this work so well, right? Because it was, he, he actually told me, hey, can you write a note? I don't wanna go back to work yet, even though I feel like I can go back to work. Can you just write me a note? I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I said, why did this work so well? And I think it was the synergy of it all. It was the synergy of the oral nutrients, the ivermectin, and the IV therapy, all of it working together in a coordinated, you know, orchestrated effort for his benefit. Because when we understand the mechanism of action of all these little things that are going on, they all harmonize. And that's where you can get to some special healing potential. So I, I, I saw that, and I, was, I just got the feeling there's nothing we can't treat when it comes to COVID if we really understand the mechanism of actions and what we're doing with our therapeutic intervention.
3: I I don't I, I'm sorry that I neglected to say that was amazing, Doctor Healy. Just just from a practical perspective, we've treated. Um, really hundreds of thousands of, do- of patients at America's Frontline Doctors, and a lot of the doctors themselves have treated, like Dr. Tyson is one of us, and he himself is treated, and Dr. Zelenko has treated thousands. They have very, very few hospitalizations and death. I mean, we're talking, you know, I think two and a thousand, you know, again, I'm not positive with the numbers, but very, very few. And I personally have treated patients, I typically treat them early because I do more outpatient than inpatient. Um, but you can give somebody an early treatment right when they're sick, and you literally... Seen improvement it, within hours. I, the shortest I ever saw was two hours. That person was really quite early, but routinely it's twelve to twenty hours. You know, if, if I get somebody early, and I just want people to have heard heard
1: a doctor say that. Thank you. Very inspiring. Thank goodness for <laughs> for y'all, um, Dr. McCullough. I'm sure you have another heartwarming, inspiring. Experience. Those are
2: hard to beat, but just my commentary is that um, I, I think this is a, a really a, a unique time in medicine where um, I've learned so much from naturopathic physicians. I, I have I actually had, I needed a window to speak to America this year. I started America Out Loud on the McCullough Report last year. I was a regular contributor to The Hill. Um, But both years, I needed a vehicle to communicate to America, and I've brought in several naturopathic physicians uh, like Dr. Ely and actually others that are just absolutely excellent I've seen COVID-19 in my family members and I can tell you I can vouch uh, firsthand about the catabolic strain that COVID-19 is on the human body and the weight loss that happens with severe cases, particularly the seniors, uh, is extraordinary. Um, and I've managed, uh, like many, I've managed, I haven't managed to the extent that, that the uh, heroes in American frontline doctors have, but in my patients in my practice, I've managed patients pretty second. Sadly, I've lost a few patients. Uh, in each and every circumstance where patients have died, they haven't received enough early treatment. We haven't gotten it too early, and people are contacting the doctors too late. Uh, One of my patients who's a friend of mine who passed away, he literally called me from the CVS parking lot short of breath, asking me to to try to get him some drugs. And I, I did the best I could, but we just couldn't. If we would have had the lead time and started eight days earlier, we would have been so much better off. Um, I recently had a couple, a physician who's about age 60. She was an early treating doctor. She's kind of in our network and her husband got COVID-19. She was taking a lot of risks as she took, she she cared for COVID patients. She was an independent practice. They both developed a severe syndrome and we ran every drug. They got monoclonal antibodies. They got nutraceutical uh, bundles. They uh, were, uh, went through ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine-based programs, azithromycin or doxycycline, inhaled budesonide, oral prednisone, oral colchicine, uh, full-dose aspirin, and subcutaneous lovinox. We ran the entire program, but they had a severe, both of them had a severe syndromes. We got oxygen concentrators. They knew that the game was to stay at home and not be hospitalized. Why? Because the hospital is a step down in care. It's a step down. We can actually give more comprehensive treatment at home. And we ran the oxygen saturations actually in the 70s for a period of time. And it's interesting, COVID-19, because of the mechanism of hypoxemia and COVID-19 is not intra pulmonary edema or consolidative pneumonia, the mechanism is actually microthrombosis in the lungs. It's a different mechanism. There's a dissociation between the amount of dyspnea and the amount of hypoxemia. It's very similar to going to altitude. What I try to explain to people is that when they go to altitude and their oxygen saturations dip below 90, it's not its not a time for panic because of the the body's ability to manage a diffusion gradient fine. So we actually manage the O2 saturations at home with oxygen concentrators uh, now available by a phone call to the medical supplier, get them on Amazon, get them the next day uh, for several weeks. Neither one was hospitalized. We had to make I think two urgent care visits for some supplemental IVs, but we got them through the illness and recovery. And it was long, uh, but it was very heroic for them to, to be involved in the, the management. Uh, but I can tell you in the hospital, uh, things would have been pretty grim it would have been a remdesivir way too late with the renal and hepatic toxicities. It would have been um, a really uh, a sub-therapeutic doses of uh, dexamethasone and then just on oxygen or BiPAP. It would have been a miserable experience. Uh, you know, these units are closed. Uh, doctors such as myself can't even advise on my own patients. Uh, doctors seem to be uh, very nihilistic and closed-minded. Patients are getting so frustrated about inpatient care, that they're taking the hospitals to court and demanding ivermectin, demanding for those anticoagulation and having to get court orders to tell the hospitals to treat the patients appropriately. Since when in medicine has that happened? And there is a string of these precedents now. It's extraordinary. Uh, what I've written about this, is called therapeutic nihilism. Somehow it got in the minds of doctors, to not treat COVID-19, look at what Dr. Ely told you. That gentleman who went to the hospital, he should have gotten a full suite of drugs to go home with. He should have went, he had to take home prescriptions. He should have gotten hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin with the other drugs at home. He should have been given inhaled pudesonite. All this is supported by high quality studies. What the doctors are telling you tonight is we use the precautionary principle. That means we're using the best that we have at hand with a potentially fatal illness to reduce hospitalizations and deaths. We are not waiting for large scale randomized trials of four to six drugs in combination. I can tell you those trials are not even planned. So if we're (laughs) waiting for them now, they're not gonna come. I've had my colleagues say, well, uh, we need more data. I'm gonna wait for (laughs) large randomized trials and just let the bodies pile up. I can tell you what I think all this came from. It came from fear. It came from initially doctors were scared to death. I was on these task force calls. They were scared to death, and all the calls were about protecting ourselves. How do we get PPE? How do we get masks? Everyone playing defense, playing defense. And we got several weeks into this. I started asking them some questions. I said, are we going to start? We going to go on offense and start treating this problem and preventing these hospitalizations? Because if we do nothing, they're just going to pour in. And the doctors were absolutely gripped in fears of the nurse practitioners and PAs. And Before you know it, that fear became memorialized in policies. It became bolstered by uh, false claims about safety. As Dr. Gold pointed out, hydroxychloroquine never changed. In 2018, 2019, it was perfectly safe. We treated red-hot lupus patients. We treated pregnant women, rheumatoid arthritis, sick people in the hospital. No problems with hydroxy. No problems at all. Same thing with ivermectin. We treat uh, strongyloides, scabies then suddenly these drugs were purported to have safety problems once they got into use in the pandemic that was out of fear in my view and out of a rationalization of saying listen i don't want to get covid-19 myself so i'm not going to treat it and i'm going to find every reason not to treat it and that that still has been memorialized uh, today so the bottom line is we can treat covid-19 it's very successful. I'll give you one last point. I had COVID nineteen myself. I knew I was taking risks. Uh, in October, you know, my number got dialed up. I'm 58 years old. I've got some medical problems, and uh, so I knew, you know, I knew that something was happening. I was so ridiculous myself. I still couldn't admit that I had COVID nineteen. I was literally the night before a full day in the clinic, and finally, my son, who's a medical student, he goes, "You have COVID nineteen. You need to cancel your clinic." and go get a test. And I was already behind. I got the test. I had COVID-19. I did the right thing. My wife and I had it together. I got in an FDA approved protocol of hydroxychloroquine. So I took hydroxychloroquine with other drugs in sequence. I filled out every case report form. I did it by the book. Um, I did get pulmonary involvement. I was not hospitalized. I recovered. I actually exercised on day 8 and made a video on it. It was my treatment day 6. I was very short of breath, but I wanted to show America I can do it, and I did it. And now that I am COVID recovered, it turns out I had sequencing. I had the British variant, the Alpha variant. I can tell you right now, I've seen the Alpha variant. I've made two videos where I've made house calls out of desperation on weekends, patients are trying to get some care, and I've come red. I've come face to face with red hot acutely sick covid patients no mask none neither one of us had masks and you know what i had to show america that immunity is robust and durable i made videos of both with consent and then follow up videos a week later to show america that i'm not sick with delta because covid that best covid recovered patients have robust complete and durable mood you can't get it again and we, this is the only way we're going gr- to break this grip of fear and get back to normal is had COVID recovered patients sitting shoulder to shoulder in the classroom everywhere we go. They're an immunologic buffer. They cannot give or receive the virus.
3: May, may I share something with that? That's a great story, Peter. I hadn't quite heard that. So I, I'm not going to name names, but there's two people on my team at the America's Frontline Doctors. And uh, I may make this video public. I haven't decided. About a week ago, two weeks ago, one of them came down with COVID, um, the, a healthy young person. And the person with them who had COVID already, not a doctor, said, I want to get that. I want to be exposed again. I said, don't worry about it. You're immune. He, so what he did, <laughs> he took a Q-tip. They literally, one the, the person with COVID currently put a Q-tip, and I'm not recommending anyone does this. But this was what they wanted to do the other one puts a q-tip up his nose he said i'm going to show the world that you can take this exposure and because i already had COVID, i'm fine i just had to share that with you i've never really said that out loud i just think it was really funny and it's true it's true so well, that,
2: that's kind of a gooey way to do it
3: um, <laughs> they, um, they were related they were related
2: i will say that but there was still. a paper there was a paper from inserm the research institute in france that tested uh, an exposure. So they actually had a fully vaccinated person and they took a red hot COVID patient um, in the same room, a small like a conference room. And the answer was it took about three hours to infect the fully vaccinated person. And so I imagine unvaccinated, unvaccinated, red hot uh, to susceptible, it could be shorter than that. But it's really this uh, close contact. The other thing I'd say uh, in the very first uh, p- uh, paper, we had multidisciplinary paper on this and subsequent ones, we emphasized fresh air and to reduce the inoculum. So mm-hmm. uh, when we saw, I was communicating with the Italians, when we saw the virus uh, slaughtering uh, people in Milan, it was these seniors in high rise towers mm-hmm. where there was no airflow. The same thing happened in New York. And mm-hmm. I started working with a lot of experts on this saying, listen, is the inoculum, does it really matter? And sure enough, data from Singapore and others poured in, it's nearly impossible to get the virus outside. And mm-hmm. in fact, it's fine for COVID 19 patients staying away from people, no mask, to get outside and to get some fresh air and not keep rebreathing the virus. It's very, very important. So we recommend this. Uh, we recommend now we follow Singapore and other countries. We actually use oral and nasal rinses. With very dilute povidone iodine or betadine, swish and spit, gargle, spit it in the nose. It's prophylactic. We use it during active treatment because it cuts down on the viral loading and the potential transmission to others. Uh,
0: hmm. Can I jump in real quick, Peter? Have you have you seen the study that Rutgers just put out on the chlorhexidine uh, in the? I think it's in Listerine as a mouth rinse and its effectiveness against. The, ex- ex- no, ex-
2: well, you, you know, the, it, I'm glad you brought this up because um, I've been working with Paul Gossett, who's an anti-infective dentist in Chicago. He reached out to me, and I really learned from him. He goes, you know, dentists have been in the mouths of people through the entire <laughs> pandemic. He right. goes, have you ever heard any dental outbreaks? I go, no, I haven't. He goes, hmm. that's because this is what we do. He says that, you know, for cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus, the ADA has recommendations of uh, deperlance, I think he calls it, that basically sterilize the mouth they kill the virus. And uh, and and it can be, povidone iodine, dilute, dilute so- uh, hydrogen peroxide, dilute sodium hypochlorite, which is household bleach. Believe it or not, a couple mm-hmm. drops of household bleach in a in a juice glass of water, swish and spit. So when Trump was holding the the thing of, of bleach, people said drink the bleach. Maybe you know someone was actually trying to inform him that's in the American Dental Association <laughs> recommendations mm-hmm. for Epstein Barr virus and so so you can actually use that. And then as Dr. Ely pointed out. Even a, a Listerine, regular Listerine, it turns out all different forms of Listerine are fine. You have to watch out for some mouthwatches that don't have the right uh, uh, um, chlorhexidine in it. But the bottom line, it's a little hard to use in the, in the nose and mouth, but I share a link of a dentist in New York City who made this where you just, you, you make the Povidone iodine, that's the most common one, and just take a little nose spray and spray it up there and then snort it out or go in the shower. Dr. Gossett does, says he does it twice a day for prevention and then with a documented
0: exposure, he goes four times a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I, I, this it, it seems like we're we're going back to what we've already known. You know, if you want to go back to the Ayurvedics, we're talking about nitty pots, right? We're talking about just keeping your your nasal uh, pharynx clean and and making sure that you're practicing good hygiene. I mean, it's 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 not complicated. I mean, I was I was listening to Dr. Gold talk, and I was thinking you know about getting outside and everything, and I'm thinking to myself. You know, the University of Tel Aviv published a wonderful study showing that UV lighting kills 99.9% of SARS-CoV-2. So I'm like, well, you know, that tells us we need to be outside even more. I mean, vitamin D, you know, UV lighting, <laughs> fresh air. I mean, we, we've turned this into something that it's not, which is a scary unknown. There is so much known about this. If this was March of 2020, yes, okay, I understand it. We were all a little scared in, in, 20, in, in March 2020, but now we're 18, 19 months later, there's so much empirical evidence, so much clinical evidence, so much peer reviewed research out there that there's no reason to carry around an a ethos of fear. We have to take a quick break, so stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages.
4: It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM sleep. The only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent pending, pill free, ultra absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
0: Welcome back. Let's continue with Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Simone Gold, and yours truly, Dr. H.
1: Well, this is great. This is such amazing information. Um, I do want to go back to an issue that both Dr. McCullough and Dr. Gold touched on, natural immunity from COVID infection versus immunity from the vaccine. And and let's talk, talk specifically perhaps about the mRNA vaccine, which gives a very specific type of immunity, very specific antibodies to that specific protein. How did these things match up? Let's start with Dr. Gold.
3: So I'll take the easier questions and I'll defer the harder questions to Dr. McCullough. But what the American people need to know is that these types of vaccines have never been used uh, this type of science has never been used in a vaccine before. It's causing the shots cause your body to create spike proteins. So what it means is, instead of inhaling the virus with the spike proteins and letting it slowly build up in your mucosa, your nasal pharynx area over several days, all of a sudden your body is hit with billions and billions of spike proteins in in the blood, essentially, and many of us are very alarmed about this. The reasons we're alarmed, we had speculative reasons prior to them, but now that it's been authorized since December, we have hard data to show that these spike proteins themselves are dangerous. Two studies that I think are worth mentioning is one from the University of California, San Diego, Salk Institute, which I liked because they took, not the virus, but they made kind of a fake thing. They made a pseudovirus, and around it, they put spike proteins. And it turns out that the spike proteins by themselves without the virus are bad for you. They're bad for the skin cells, they're bad for the pulmonary lung cells, they're across the blood brain barrier, they're bad for you. A very recent preprint study, I uh, I don't wanna say the journal, I, I don't think I have the correct journal, just came out and said that the spike proteins themselves attack heart cells and this may be the reason why people are having so much problem with myocarditis, heart inflammation. Dr. McCullough may know more than me on this. The point is, there hasn't been it's a new modality it's stressing the body by giving billions and billions of these spike proteins all at once in the bloodstream instead of going as a respiratory virus slowly building up immunity and and fighting back in the mucosa in the nasal passageways and it's also been very very short right there's been no long-term animal studies there's been no long-term observations and I always end with, you know, is the cure worse than disease, right? Again, if you're under 20, untreated, chance of survival per the CDC, 99.997%. If you're under 50, 99.98%, right? 50 to 70, 99.5%. And over 70, it's almost 95%. And if you have early treatment, it approaches 100 So we at America's Frontline Doctors feel very, very strongly that you cannot be offering experimental medications. I don't care what the FDA calls it. If it didn't exist last year, it's experimental. You cannot offer experimental medications to young people who have decades of lives ahead of them without those
1: long-term data. That's what we say. And how about you, Dr. Ely? Natural immunity from COVID infection versus the vaccine. Which do you think is is most effective, and why?
0: Well, uh, I, 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 right off the bat, it's it's clear. The evidence that we've seen in in the sci- in the scientific literature is sh- is showing that people who've recovered have robust, durable, and a word that I like to use, flexible. And the reason I like to use the word flexible is because it means that these people immune systems are primed to handle any variation of this any variant so they really have nothing to worry about but let me I want to back Dr Gold up on this a little bit uh, number one the clinical trials are still according to the National Institutes of Health still ongoing through October 27th of 2022 for moderna January 2nd of 2023 for Johnson and Johnson and May 2nd uh, of 2023 for the mm-hmm. Pfizer bio Pfizer one. So these are definitively still experimental. These are the by any any reasonable legal you know look at this. These are still in clinical trial therefore these are experimental products. Um, I think it's important for us to look at the Varus data. I, I, I'm still blown away by the work that Tom, attorney Tom Renz has done with the whistleblower uh, lawsuit in the U.S. District Court of Alabama that shows that whatever number you're looking at in Varis for COVID vaccines, you can multiply it by safely by a factor of five. What that does is that puts us right now at over 65,000 fatalities relative to this. And I know there's always that counter argument. It drives me up the wall, Peter, when I hear people say, well, correlation doesn't equal causation, right? Because then I go, okay, well, then let's look at the first 48 hours in Paris. The first 48 hours show that there, as of last Friday, 4,909 deaths within 48 hours. So now multiply it by five, that's over 20,000 deaths. And I like to take people back to something simple, lucky charms. If Lucky Charms was involved in 4,909 deaths over eight months, what would happen to Lucky Charms? Pulled off the shelf, right? You'd never see Lucky Charms again. It wouldn't be magically delicious, right? So what we have to make sure that we're doing is holding products to the same standard. Because if if you're going to keep throwing the words safety at me, then let's really talk about what safety means, right? Instead of this nebulous, well, you got to expect some people to die. No, I don't. I was trained to do no harm. So I don't have to expect people to die. So where it comes to the um, natural immunity versus vaccine, there's a really good, there's several studies that are just mind-blowing in my opinion. Uh, And I wanted to back Peter up on something you said, the the chance of getting infection, uh, a secondary infection, Alexis, if a person has already recovered. We have two studies right now. I know P- one of them Peter's not a big fan of, but one of them shows a possible reinfection rate within nine months of 0.65%. And another one just dropped last week showing a possible reinfection rate of 0.8%. So it's to say it's just really not possible. Now, when we look at this, there's, uh, there's 15 studies right now that we've seen uh, sh- uh, comparing Natural immunity to um, to vaccine-induced immunity, and I think it's very telling that they're saying we have done this. This vaccine has done such a poor job of protecting Americans that now we have to advocate for a booster every five months. Now, what is it? Five months or something like that? Originally, it was thought eight nine now? months.
1: I think they're saying eight now, but eight. Actually, it's
3: been reduced from eight to six. And now in, in Israel, if it's been six months, they don't consider you vaccinated at all.
0: At, at all, so now you now you lose your passport status, great. Um, so there's the New York University study that came out in May of this year, and I just want to read one thing. I'm not going to read all 15 them, but this, this I thought was very telling. Uh, the study notes, they concluded, in COVID-19 patients, immune responses were characterized by a highly augmented interferon response, which was largely absent in vaccine recipients. Increased interferon signaling likely contributed to the observed dramatic upregulation of cytotoxic, cytotoxic genes in the peripheral T cells and innate-like lymphocytes in patients, but not in immu- immunized subjects. So what does that mean, right? A lot of big fancy college words in there, right? It means that the people who have been infected and recovered, their immune system was primed via their uh, T cells, via their cytokine cascades, via interferon, and via their antibodies, so B cells, their entire immune system is now well-coordinated to be able to deal with this the next time it comes into contact with it. So whether that's by somebody coughing on you or somebody sharing Q-tips that they've rubbed on each other's noses from somebody that's previously infected, it doesn't matter. Once you've recovered, you are good to go. There was another study in there that showed in, I think in Singapore, Peter, where they tested somebody for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies and they found that 17 years prior, they had been infected by SARS-CoV-1 and still had antibodies active. This is long, there's nothing to be scared of. Your body was designed to handle this. You just gotta give it some nutrients and some good early treatment and you're gonna be fine. That's really what it comes down to. There's no. There, and there's no comparison. Artific- I, I call the immunity that's conferred by the inoculations when it is conferred, um, I, I call it artificial. There's no comparison between natural immunity, meaning you got infected and your body recovered, and the artificial immunity that's conferred. There's no comparison because the artificial immunity that is conferred is based upon what Dr. Goel was saying an experimental technology we've never seen, never used before. So anybody that's saying it's better, if they're saying it based upon no empirical evidence, they're flying in the face of the data that we have, and even worse, they're asking you to trust them because they said so. That sounds like something my parents would say, and I didn't elect or, or anybody to be my parent last time I checked.
3: Art- artificial immunity, um, just to keep it really simple, It's only to to little portions of of the SARS-CoV-2, right? Whereas natural immunity is to the whole thing. So when you're exposed to a new variant and you've already had natural immunity and you've recovered, your body recognizes it. Whereas if you've got the artificial immunity, but it's all been rejiggered because it's a new variant, it doesn't really recognize it. We see this um, in all the studies all across the world. It's showing that vaccinated and unvaccinated are getting sick at the same rate, so.
1: Dr. McCullough, what would you like to add on the issue of natural versus limited? It's hard to add much. Um, uh, You know, I've
2: gone through the mental exercise of memorizing the first author of these uh, papers uh, really as a product of survival of fact checkers. So I have fact checkers all over the place hunting me down uh, and trying to make a claim that I I, I, I gave misinformation. So uh, this is for the fact checkers out there because I've got you and I know that you never fact check uh, when I start giving you first authors. So this is what we know, 15 studies support that natural immunity is far superior to vaccine immunity, far superior. Merchew and colleagues from Ireland, 615,000 individuals, 11 studies the chances, and this is both well-documented COVID and then not well-documented, where we didn't have the original PCR, but we just had antibodies or suspected COVID, the chances of uh, reinfection, 0.2%. Shretha and colleagues, Cleveland Clinic, unvaccinated COVID recovered individuals, uh, going back out into 2,500 of them, going back out into the workplace, 5% ambient rate of COVID-19, zero reinfections. I have looked at the literature of anyone claiming a second infection with COVID-19. There's about a hundred cases out there. In each and every case, it's not a second infection. It's actually a misinterpretation of a false positive PCR. We are still yet to have a well-documented case, uh, You know, six months later coming with a well-documented case. I'm talking PCR antigen sequencing, something to really prove that it's a solid second case. It hasn't happened. If it was possible to get COVID-19 over and over again, we would have seen millions and millions and millions of cases, okay? The CDC on its website has thousands of vaccine failures, thousands of them, thousands of vaccine failures. They don't have a single case of natural immunity failure up on their website. So this idea that, that, that it's possible to get a second infection, maybe it is. I thought I had one of my own patients. She really sold me on it. We went for confirmatory testing. It wasn't a case. I, I said, if you are, I'll write you up. You're my first case. I know it's going to happen sooner or later. Someone's going to get a second infection, but it's negligible. But our Surgeon General and our head of the uh, National Allergy and Immunology Branch have actually come on TV and with a straight face said that vaccine immunity is better than natural immunity when we're awash in vaccine failures. Dr. Gold has mentioned Israel. Israel's head is vaccinated. Everybody they can vaccinate in the adults their post-vaccination peak with Delta now is bigger than their pre-vaccination peak. Over 80% of all their cases are fully vaccinated, including those in the hospital and those dying. Go to Iceland, Gibraltar, um, uh, uh, UK, Seychelles. Go, yeah, Seychelles, go anywhere else, the same pattern uh, exists. So Haver and colleagues from the CDC representative sample in June uh, declared hospitalized COVID-19 patients, 23.4% were partially or fully vaccinated. That's when Delta was shading in. We know that through papers by Venkata Krishnan and by Fahrenheit um, uh, that we know that Delta is not stopped by the vaccines, it's not. So as Delta fully shades in in July and August, we're gonna see the proportion of those in the hospital match the proportion of those vaccinated in the community. I'm in Texas. Our overall community rate of vaccination is about 40%. It'll be 40% in the hospital with COVID-19. Sadly, those in the hospital and those dying of vaccine failures, sadly, uh, 80% over age 65. So those who we intended to protect the most um, are failing the vaccines. Now, it's been shown now the Israeli health minister has Pfizer down to 39% vaccine efficacy Piranac and colleagues, Mayo Clinic and Boston Collaboration, they have Pfizer at 42% protection. As Dr. Gold mentioned, that they are moving in the boosters closer and closer. Any vaccine that can't hit 50% protection in at least a year in duration is considered a non-viable vaccine. It's a non-viable vaccine. And I think that's the reason why in August 23rd, the FDA and Pfizer and BioNTech moved up the meeting to August 23rd and had a regulatory meeting where Pfizer, based even based on legacy data, before Delta, the older variants, which are now extinct, Pfizer was not approved. Pfizer just had a continuation of the EUA. Then there was a sleight of hand, and BioNTech, legally distinct entity, maybe medicinally distinct, was given uh, conditional approval, but lots of uh, levering on uh, post-marketing studies for myocarditis, uh, a complete uh, a statement of Uh, lack of any type of confidence in pregnant women is in the uh, Comirnaty package insert. And what came out of that meeting was a false talking point that went all the way up to the president of the United States that said that Pfizer was approved. It was not FDA approved. That false talking point triggered a whole wave of inappropriate um, uh, vaccine mandates. And then a week later, the FDA official official, um, of the vaccine biologic products division who signed the letter to BioNTech resigns. Resigned. resigned. Mm-hmm. So that is the sequence of us. And let me tell you, this is a big, busy regulatory season right now. This is the Super Bowl for the Vaccine Biological Regulatory Division of the FDA. I've presented at the FDA. I've chaired data safety monitoring boards. I've been in the bullpen with sponsors, helping them prepare. I can tell you, this is their Super Bowl. And for two officials to step down in the middle of the action I think is te- it basically speaks volumes for what's going on with respect to regulatory malfeasance.
0: Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Energetic Health Radio. Remember, you can go to covidcon21.com to watch the full episode. That's covidcon21.com. And may God shine his divine light down upon you, everyone you love and surround you in the protection of his warm embrace. I'm Dr. H for the Energetic Health Radio. One love, everybody. Have a great day.